0: Welcome to the Book Glass podcast, which showcases a selection of the best writing from around the world published by small presses and imprints at the majors who specialise in translation. Today, I'm delighted to be able to be interviewing the internationally best-selling French-Algerian novelist Gen and her translator Sarah Arrizoni. Your first novel, Kif Kif de published in England under the title Just Like Tomorrow, sold over 400,000 copies when it came out and has been translated into 26 different languages. You were 19.
1: What was your idea of a writer's life back then? Honestly, I had no idea of what a writer's life, and the idea of becoming a writer uh, didn't even, you know, hit my mind a second. So. And a happy accident for me to become a writer. I grew up in an in a area where uh, we don't even had uh, the idea of different, um, uh, different ways to, to go out. So for me, a writer was a very old person, white person, uh, a rich person, so not me. <laughs> For how long had you been writing? Was your family supportive
0: of your storytelling? Because you started writing at quite an early age, didn't you?
1: I was a, a very young child when I started to write. It's, it was for me like, you know, uh, a hobby. So they, they were used to see me with a pen and write things. And sometimes my mother um, put this... Work these stories uh, in the trash, <laughs> it was not a serious thing. It, it was like a, a child who is uh, drawing or, uh, you know, making puzzles. And after, um, when I was a teenager, at uh, the age of 13, I uh, took part uh, in um, a workshop in my area with um, a great uh, French teacher. And we started to write to write some um, pieces of um, a scenario of uh, small uh, text for short movies in the way not professional but uh, it was my first experience of collective writing and that was the moment where uh, my parents, especially my mother, took part in this um, in this work. Uh, she played with me in my um, in my short movies and I I think she realized at this time that it was something that was important to me. Uh, So my first experience was uh, to write some uh, stories for um, short movies. And after that, I started to write the first novel, Kif Kif Demain, in this workshop, but I couldn't imagine that uh, it will become a novel, a real novel. The fabulous man uh, was uh, Boris Seguin, so he was a teacher of a French class in uh, the um, school of this area where where I was uh, studying at this time. He has not uh, just with me uh, a sense of how to to make uh, these students more confident about themselves about the perception of themselves. And this workshop, it was for us a way to write and um, express ourselves about what were our lives, very different from what we could see at this time in French television, in medias. And it was really, I don't know how to say it, uh, a way to feel free to expose our uh, vision. So Boris, it was, uh, he became the friend with the, the years and he, he seen how um, he can uh, push me to, to go on with this uh, write, writing. I think the, the main difference with this teacher, especially, was that he hadn't condescendance, mépris, he wasn't patronizing, he wasn't uh, in this um, way. He wasn't paternalist with us. He truly respects our uh, culture and our visions and uh, treat us as young adults and not uh, some um, poor young people uh, he had to save. And I think it was very, very important to us your novels tell the stories of normal people living in urban tower
0: block estates surrounding cities like Paris, Lyon and Marseille. They struggle with racism, cultural hybridity and how to make a living in the face of poverty and unemployment. People may share a history but maintain very different perspectives. With the complicated history of France and Algeria in mind, has the Black Lives Matter movement helped to illuminate and support alternative representations challenging the official narrative
1: of historical events? For uh, these last years, these last years with uh, the these new voices coming up, talking about what is um, uh, the life of um, uh, immigration descendant from uh, this history of colonization, in particular in France, we finally have uh, like a sort of legitimacy to talk about these this things and to write about it. And maybe we have finally, we can finally talk about this uh, without this um, accusation of being a victim, you know? This um, uh, worldwide movement around Black Lives Matter, etc. it was, uh, we can, you know, take part of something more global that specific French problematics about immigration. Like if we can, uh, took in seriously our uh, perspectives. I don't know if I am clear. We have also this thing in France, like for example with uh, the problematics about uh, les violences policières. And last, he, last year, last year with um, George Floyd de- death, I observed something here. It's, um, we can uh, freely talk about racism, violence with police uh, when it's, it happens in the United States or in uh, United Kingdom, but in France we have a different perspective. They have a, um, an ability to talk about and to critique uh, you know the American system, for example, and to I don't know if,
2: if the word exists, but diabolizing making them seem like like devils, like Satan, and the (laughs) word is... vilifying and villainizing, villainizing. Yeah, villainizing. So in France, we have this ability
1: to villainizing the American system and to say how racism is so bad outside. And a real difficulty to accept that in our country, here in France, we have systemic racism... Very powerful.
0: Sarah, you have translated Gael Fay, Timothée de Fontbelle, Daniel Pénac, and, exceptionally, Alain Maboncou's Black Bazaar. Your translation of Pfizer debut novel, Just Like Tomorrow, won the Scott Moncrief Prize for Translation in 2007. You went on to translate her novels Dreams from the Ends, Barbelto, and others. And now, Men Don't Cry. What
3: was your working process like? How involved was Pfizer? So what you're asking me, Georgia, is what's my relationship, in a sense, been with Faiza over 16 years? And um, funnily enough, uh, we had a correspondence just the other day and I brought up the article that I wrote for The Guardian and that was published in 2006, and that was the very first time that I met Faiza. I interviewed her, and I had, by that stage, translated just like tomorrow, and I had collaborated very closely with young bilingual slang experts in Brixton, the area of London where I live. So a lot of collaboration had occurred in terms of uh, finding equivalents for how all the colour and dynamic and rhythm and liveliness and fun and joy and frustration um, within Faiza's language. How that that was going to work in English. But I hadn't yet had the encounter with her. And it was a really funny moment. I can still remember it vividly. And we met in a cafe, which was where Faiza chose to meet journalists. And we were sort of booked in for an hour together, I think. And it was just this very uncanny encounter, because I had been inside Faiza's head for months and months in this book that I just adored that um, the very first time I read I forgot to get off the bus and it went right to the end of the line because I was reading it with such joy and I had so many questions for her and and questions that could still apply back to the book because I think it was being edited at the time so it was great I could feed in all of that and uh, I remember Faiza looking at me quite quizzically and sort of saying, you know, no one's asked me a question about that before. And it was, it was almost sort of like, you know, like it was an, a, um, an analysis session or something. And uh, it, was, it, was, um, it was very friendly. It was very fascinating. It was very exciting. But because Faiza, had, this was her, her first novel and, and such an important moment for her. And for me, it was a love affair. It was this book that I had just adored being involved in and, and and so I had so many questions and that was 16 years ago and now we've been on a real journey and and we're six books in and uh, you know just last night I was sending Faiza all sorts of questions for discretion which is the novel of Faiza's that I'm translating at the moment and so the questions come much earlier the impact on the English happens much earlier we're in dialogue about a lot for some commissions they've come through English sources. So Faiza's written them for an English market in mind for some pieces that she's written. So it's about how we've, we've grown and responded and evolved and, and kept having fun and kept interrogating each other and where we stand and what the relationship means over that time. Faiza, in
0: your latest novel, Men Don't Cry, we witness the ups and downs of a family through the eyes of Murad born in Nice to Algerian parents. There is mistrust of the receiving culture on the part of the parents and ambivalence with regards to the homeland on the part of the younger generation, Dunya, Mina and Murad, who end up following very different paths. How were these characters developed?
1: For Men's um, Don't my first idea was to explore this question of um, how you can be raised in the same social environment by the same parents with the same... Uh, a story and be so different and take some so different ways, roads. And my first idea was two sisters. So the characters of Dunia and, uh, and Mina, uh, like the opposite way uh, of living, of thinking. of And I had these two characters very strong and very opposed to each other. And I started to write. And I like I feel I missed something, and I needed the I needed another voice, an alternative voice of these two roads, very opposites. So I need the voice of Murad. I need this um, question in the middle. You know, this is Murad, the main character, is the voice of the middle, uh, and this this question is: Can we? imagine that there is a possibility to have a you know happy life and free feel free as an adult uh, in this um, uh, identity building um, but not necessarily have to cut to to cut the, the links with uh, our heritage and I feel that Murad can be the one who responds to this question, who answer this question. It's, for me, when you gr- you grow up in France as descendants of immigrants, and especially for the Al- Algerian immigration, you have to choose. And I don't think it's the same thing in England, for example, because we don't have here, it's not, I don't know how to say it, but uh, le communautarisme. So... You have to belong to one community, it's the Republic. And that's all. You don't have the possibility to be yourself and be a French as you want to be a French. So you can be free, but in the French way. You have one option. You can be a um, French citizen in one, you know, one option. and. I think this is very important to understand why I build this character of Murad, which uh, is a character. He he he's looking for his place, and he don't feel like to be radical to cut with the family and the heritage and tradition. So he can be a complete French person, but he do, he doesn't feel also to. Um, to be the um, proud son of um, his parents and to um, reproduce this heritage with some tradition uh, very fixed.
3: What I was going to say is that, funnily enough, I think these issues play out in one of the questions that I've just sent Faiza, because there's a little phrase in Discretion that I'm translating at the moment, and one of the characters has to pay an exorbitant rent of 850 euros a month for her studio that's 20 metres squared. But that's the price that you pay and the sacrifice that you make for living in, and Faiza's words are intra intramuros, so inside the inner walls of Paris. And so... So what that means is that you're inside the peripherique and the rent is high and it involves paying sacrifices. And Faiza, because she's always so funny and quick to quip, says, you know, living extramuros your horse, living outside those walls and outside the peripherique also requires sacrifices, just different ones. And what I'm asking, Faiza, is do we keep that as inner Paris and outer Paris? So it's just the geography, or is there also that notion of value judgment and a one story, the, 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 the kind of tyranny, in Chimamanda's words, you know, the tyranny, if you like, of the, of the one story, is it that that's in Paris proper and that outside is in Paris improper? So it depends how much we want to play with that. But those issues and those value judgments and that um, the, the power business is is always there underlying. And, and with Faiza, I think what's so interesting in her writing and so interesting in terms of challenging me to translate it is when you want, want to emphasize the dig and, and the inequality and when you need to be very light touch because otherwise the book you know, the book would be well translating it would become treacherous because I would be over-egging the subtext. But but so those issues play out there. And absolutely I think Mulhard is the character who who attempts to find this middle way. He has a different trajectory anyway, as a male in the family and not one of the daughters, although not for the reasons that you might necessarily expect. And he's a French teacher in the French system, dealing with a school in the banlieue and uh, but living in the 16th arrondissement and driving a swish car into work. So it's fantastic because he he bucks expectations and, and that's what Faiza always does. To what extent did your personal experiences at school influence Murad's experiences
0: as a teacher at an inner-city Parisian school in Men Don't Cry?
1: I feel that Murad as a teacher for this, this first year of teaching in uh, Montreuil, in paris banlieue, was like responsible of the question of the transmission in the book. And uh, myself, as a student of a um, school in uh, Paris-Banlieue, in Pantin, where I grew up, in the middle of 90s, I can, I, I can feel what, at this time, the young teachers uh, coming from another uh, cities of France, uh, province, i i I'm still feeling how it was difficult for them to come and in these uh places where they complete completely ignore what uh was our conditions of living and it's like a very violent uh shock so that's the first part. I remember this uh, young teacher at this, at this time. And also I have a very close friend. And he was uh, in my class for many years when I was, um, when I was in high school. And he, uh, at this time when I was writing the novel, he was uh, experienced th- his first year as a teacher. And he was telling me how it was to follow the formation. I don't know the... Courses, training, of... okay. And I was so surprised to learn through his uh, his uh, experience how the teachers débutants, beginners, how these teachers are so um, j'arrive pas à le dire en anglais, je suis désolée. Je veux dire qu'ils sont livrés à eux-mêmes, no support. Je pense que la formation pour devenir professeur est très insuffisante. It's inadequate. It's inadequate training to
3: get those young teachers up to scratch. Yeah. You, uh,
1: I, I was expecting. Uh, I don't know that maybe the psychological part was important in the in this class to become a teacher uh, at the EUFM. It's the institute to to form uh, young teachers, and especially the teachers who goes to uh, these uh, areas and these schools particularly because the public in these schools is specific so you have to it's not only theory so his this friend wa- was in at this time in his first year of uh, teaching and he was telling me about how, how he was feeling in front of his new uh, students these young people and he felt all the things he learned at school disappear totally. He has to be a new person, you know, and it inspired me a lot. How you build like a new character to be
2: an authoritarian person, a credible teacher in, in their eyes. It's so inspiring to hear that from you Faiza and
3: also after I'd translated men don't cry and long long after you wrote it there's now this film la vie scolaire oh yes uh, made what? made by grand corps Malade and Medidir, <laughs> and and that is set in a in a banlieue college and and there seems to be so much overlap it's available on Netflix as school life. And there seems to be so much overlap between the classroom scenes in Men Don't Cry and and that film and the language and the the journeys of the teachers and the students. It made me feel very nostalgic in a way watching it because there seems to be a lot in common. Uh, And sometimes when I was translating, I was thinking, come on, you're exaggerating. It's not going to be this (laughs) non-politically correct or this challenging, is it? And then, boom,
2: the film is saying, no, this is this is the real deal.
1: Ça me fait penser,
2: j'aimerais ton aide Sarah parce que c'est un peu compliqué pour moi de l'expliquer en anglais.
1: Mais pour
3: moi Ça ce, like uh,
1: ce que je voulais dire sur le, la question de, de l'expérience des nouveaux professeurs qui enseignent en banlieue,
3: c'est aussi so, que...
2: like banlieue. C'est que finalement certains ont moins de vécu que leurs élèves qui ont euh, 13 ans en phase 2 moins de, de, de conscience de la réalité sociale qui nous frappe so what happens is that some of those teachers have less lived experience less awareness of, of, of
3: what's
1: going on than the 13 year olds who are sitting in front of them je crois que c'est, c'est quelque chose de, de fondamental qu'il faut comprendre and that was uh, that's why when I talk talk about uh, Boris Seguin, uh, my uh, my teacher um, at this time in this workshop, I felt like it was the first time I had in front of me a teacher who can maybe understand what I live, what I was living at this time, and it was very very important. But it's just a way to you know to to give confidence to these students. I mean, just by explaining to, to them that, for example, her, their, um, I don't know, their uh, original language, for example, Arabic for me, uh, has the same value that's the French language. That, I don't know, uh, uh, Algerian writers or whatever, even, you know, the stories your mother told you when you were a child. It's also, you know, it's uh, important, as important as... English stories or French stories it's just that you don't have we don't have a culture more uh, respectful Non. oui mais ce que je veux dire c'est important qu'on sente que ce que nous représentons et l'histoire que nous portons et la culture que nous avons même si elle n'est que orale elle est, elle
2: elle est aussi importante que la culture française qui nous est enseignée à l'école de manière traditionnelle so it's about so, validation and affirmation, isn't it? And saying that
3: your culture, even if the stories in it are oral, uh, even if they're not written down, they are as important and r- deserve as much respect um, and place as, as, as the other stories you're learning about through French language. And I was thinking Faiza as well, because you're involved in La Grande Dictée aren't you yes. at the moment, which is a, it's a very French thing. We wouldn't have the equivalent of that in the UK. Um, so having to write dictations is a way of learning French because there's all the added complications in French of accents and and so on that we don't have in English and, and getting up to speed with the accuracy. And you are part of this big movement where well-known writers or, or well-known people in French life um, travel to different areas and you read out a text for young Young people um, of all different backgrounds to get their their French writing up to speed. So that's a sort of um, it's at sort of an angle to what we've just been talking about, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is, um, and it's it's funny sometimes when I um, go to these uh, events with dictée pour tous. On dit godmother pour dire marraine. I am the godmother of the, of this. Association of this Dicté pour tous, and we traveled all around France in different areas, in different uh, uh, banlieues to, to do this uh, Dicté. And we have all uh, different ages, uh, social. Uh, it's very interesting to see how mixed, uh, you know, mixed people.
0: Pfizer, the women in your novel are strong and eloquent. The contrasting of the mother and her very different daughters Dunia and Mina shows how they are caught between different worlds as the republican ideal calls on citizens to integrate and renounce ethnic, cultural and religious diversity. Do you feel optimistic or pessimistic that future generations will find a way forwards or is each generation a lost generation?
1: Well, (laughs) uh, I hope hope that for the next generation some some issues uh, will be resolved. Uh, And, uh, you know, specifically the the question of uh, legitimacy.
3: Legitimacy. Um, Legitimacy.
1: I think uh, uh, we had experienced uh, this quest to know, to to find out how to be complete French citizen without uh, the idea to abandon, to leave some parts of what we are, you know? And I hope that uh, the next generation will be focused on other things, that the question of feeling free to, to be what you are and not um, have the feeling that you are not French enough. Are you a feminist writer? I think I make the difference between what what is it to be a feminist as a young, uh, not so young now, but a, a French Algerian woman and the French fem- feminism, which I think is not really inclusive. Uh, for example, I, I question this the theme of wearing a hijab now in France. And I think we can be a French woman, a Muslim woman, a free woman. And it's not very easy still today to uh, convince these white feminists that you can be both or all the things you know we have to um, to fight these ideas uh, that as a muslim woman wearing a hijab you cannot be free because we have this uh, very universalist idea of what is a free person and a free woman, and sometimes the question of identity, of religion, etc., is you know uh, put on the side. You have to to choose. So you have to choose between be free and be yourself. And I think we have to to accept that we can be. All of the things, so I feel I'm a feminist, but in my way. Je voulais dire repenser le féminisme aujourd'hui, c'est le rendre plus inclusif.
3: To rethink it for today, in order to make it more inclusive. Pfizer,
0: how do you feel about the allotments in Aubervilliers, Saint-Denis being bulldozed to make way for a timber swimming pool complex for the 2024 Olympic Games? And can your mother's beloved fig tree be saved?
1: A few days ago, one week ago, um, the people who were um, uh, fighting against this uh, project were uh, expulsed. Expulsed? Sarah, that would be banished or kicked Kicked. out? Yeah, Yes, they were kicked out by uh, police. So we... We don't have the hope to um, to interrupt this absurd architectural project uh, of uh, this uh, Olympic swimming pool. I'm sad to say that um, the uh, popular patrimoine, heritage of these gardens will be uh, abed- abandoned. It's not a priority for a the state and uh, and the the city of Aubervilliers, which is linked to this uh, project, it's a very large project, but we we are um, struggling for uh, one year and a half. And w- one week ago, uh, the first gardens were, um, as raze- flattened, yes. 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 bulldozed. Yes. So,
3: so the big story can't be saved. In the small story, can your mother's fig tree be saved?
1: Pour l'instant, les jardins sont partagés entre deux communes, Pantin et Aubervilliers. So the, allotment,
2: the allotments, are shared between two communes, Pantin and Aubervilliers. Et les jardins d'Aubervilliers ont déjà été commencé à être
1: rasés la semaine dernière. Donc les gens qui ont des jardins.
3: The aubervilliers allotments uh, already started to be bulldozed uh, last week.
1: Mais les gens qui sont à Pantin, pour l'instant, euh, ont toujours leur de terre, mais on sait pas pour combien de temps.
3: The people in Pantin still have their allotments, but we don't know for how much longer. So your mother, Faiza, still yes. has her allotment and the fig tree is on it. And do you have an escape plan for the fig tree? Do you have somewhere you could put it?
1: I don't know.
0: Men Don't Cry is similar to a TV sitcom. Irritations, quirky family antics and familial pettiness make for much hilarity. Everyone can relate to it. Tell us about some of the TV shows or films you have written or directed or both.
1: I had the, the chance to, to take part in some uh, several projects of um, movies for cinema and also TV shows especially one this year, which uh, will be titled Oussekin, like the name of uh, Malik Oussekin, which was a French student, Algerian French student. He was the first young man uh, beaten by police to death in uh, 1986. And it was the first very huge police violence affair in France. And it was like something, uh, this political event, like divided France into two parts. And it was the first very huge and mediatic affair about violence with police. So we, we've written um, four uh, episodes for a mini-series, mini-show for uh, next year. Next year in uh, the broadcast of Disney, Star for Europe. So it's a huge project and I feel very, very grateful to be part of it. It's a huge subject and of course there are many angles and perceptions. Uh, le film Les Misérables was a very, very great, great movie uh, to talk about the feeling of these young people in banlieue.
3: So you, it's a great film for expressing the way in which young people in the banlieue feel marginalised.
1: In, in Les Misérables... Uh, I noticed that we have a different point of view. So you have the we we are with the policemen, uh, we are with the young people and with uh, the other uh, references, adult references in the in the area. You have um, all these point of views as it it's uh, you know equal. We can understand each part of this of this group, of these people meeting each other every day. So policemen, young people, adults in the, in the same treatment. And that's the difference for us in this uh, TV show, Ousekin, we have specifically the, the feeling of the family of these uh, young men killed by the police and how they receive this, this drama how they are manipulated by politics by medias how they how they deal with discredit with being de- denigrated denigré we would like to um to show how since 1986 and before and after it's always the same mechanism je je veux dire les mêmes mécaniques qui se reproduisent it's always the same strategy uh, from police from politics the outcomes are always the same I think the
3: idea might perhaps be of the same yeah. pieces of the machine yes. that are going round the machine. yeah yeah
1: uh, I think we need we need to have uh, the inside voices to understand the situation in France, to understand how um, young people deal with uh, all this violence every day, with uh, racism. They are not considered as the other citizens.
0: Of course, the landmark film was La Haine. I mean, that was perhaps the first, if you like, film to really try and get under the skin of what was actually happening on the ground. Since then, therefore, not much has changed, really. Has there really been no change? Is that what yes. you're saying, depuis la haine? Because, because there are scenes there with the police and and also the media are not helpful, are they? Or maybe they're no. becoming more helpful. Maybe also the fact that writers such as yourself are really now being read and finding a readership.
1: Maybe I, um, I will seem to be pessimistic about that because I feel it has no change a lot. Maybe the the difference uh, between now and, uh, I don't know, 20 years ago, it's um, like the the focus is now on uh, Islam much more than on just, uh, you know, uh, ethnic groups who uh, are presented as problems in French society. We have something more, I don't know, insidious. It's about how now we have maybe in the media or uh, in the police also a new feeling that these people deserve to be watched more. And because with uh, what happened in France in uh, 2015, what happened in Charlie Hebdo, until, we now have like they feel the right to oppress yes. Yeah, it just, it's all justifies, exactly. justifies, exactly. Yes, justified. Exactly. No, it's it's uh, awful, but mm. we can feel that maybe inside this population, inside we have maybe potential terrorists. So we have to be more uh, tough with them. We have to be more, uh, and even if we are violent and sometimes we can have some accidents, some bavures, as we say in French, it's just you know collateral damages, because we have a, a huge danger. And that's what I trouve difficult
0: today. Sarah, a translator, is faced by singular challenges when translating literature in terms of fidelity to the original, language, the period, and the author's intentions. Pfizer's writing incorporates the language of conversations that one rarely sees written in books, Involving clever wordplay and hidden meaning, Argo and Arabic influenced backslang, known as Verlon. What is your approach? Do you carry out research on the ground?
3: well you better carry out research on the ground that's the whole fun of translating Faiza and it's it's sort of strange because I'm uh, Faiza is now the age that I was when I first met her um, and so you know and I'm now 16 years older and of course with lockdown and everything it hasn't been possible to sit on top of an under two bus and, and tune in to all the dialogue of, of young peeps um, but I have um, had a lot of collaborations over time in terms of translating the slang and Faiza and I are think there's a, um, a sort of synergy in terms of the way that we love colloquial language and we love trying to capture on the page the way that people talk as a way as opposed to the way that Conventionally, they should be thought to be scribed on the page. So it's capturing that orality and and getting it down, and so that someone reading it immediately hears the voice. I think that's something that fires us both up. And so in the past, I've worked a lot with Live Magazine in Brixton by young people for young people, 12 to 21 year olds um, across Lambeth, Lewisham, and Southwark. And Faiza and I collaborated a lot with an amazing young woman called Cleo Soazandri, who uh, grew up in the Paris suburbs and. Then then moved to South London, so she was bicultural, bilingual across both the slangs. So all those sorts of encounters have have fed into our work. Mm, um, mm, and amazing. on Men Don't Cry, I've collaborated with Rohan Ayinde, who I've sort of been turning to for slang advice since he was 13, and, and no. performance um, performance artist in his own right, photographer. So he helped me um, voicing the character of Mehdi in Men Don't Cry. So yeah, it's always a collaboration, it's always about translating with and not for, and finding how the different voices get into this work. And in a sense, I'm a a conduit, I'm an enabler, I'm making space for those different voices to get in, in order to serve Faiza's voice. And lastly, Faiza, what gives you hope? And Sarah, both of you, before you do your reading, So in terms of what gives me hope, I mean, it's just extraordinary witnessing the journey that Faiz has been on over this period of time, this 16 years that we keep talking about and how the world has changed in so many ways since she was starting out. And there was that danger when she started out that she was being perceived as this kid from the burbs and that she was a one trick pony and she was being boxed as a kind of writer on social issues as opposed to a writer in her own right. And and here we are, six books later, uh, with discretion, and we're talking about Men Don't Cry today. And it feels that Faiza is in a, a very different place where there is a lot more of the legitimacy that she's been articulating in our conversation today, Uh, there's a lot more recognition and confidence. And uh, it's fascinating seeing how Cassava, the publisher for Men Don't Cry, is reaching out to all sorts of global, diasporic, black and brown audiences and readers and connecting with them. And that just feels... A wonderful place to have arrived at in this journey that we've that we've been on and where there is less of the uh what you were talking about as a sort of patronizing approach georgia and uh, less top down and more inclusive, accessible, making these books available to to anybody for whom Faiza's stories resonate. And they are for everybody who's dealt with issues in their life Mm. and sat with trauma Mm -hmm. and sat with pain and likes to laugh. They're for anybody Mm -hmm. to whom that appealed.
1: I think the the way that I see young people, and especially young uh, women, younger than me now, I think they are more um, armed. They're better armed or be- have better tools, perhaps, or tools, knowledge. I think tools, and they are more affi- affirmative. Je pense que la jeune génération est plus armée que nous et ont réglé beaucoup de questions.
3: I think the young generation is better armed, better equipped than we are, and that they have resolved more debates, more matters. They've settled more issues than we have. Mm. Could you please finish
0: this wonderful interview with a joint reading in French and then English that exemplifies the essence of the voice and style of Men Don't Cry?
1: Pour les traditionnelles vacances de juillet en Algérie, malgré les 30 kilos de bagages autorisés, on se retrouvait toujours en excédent. Chaque année, elle trimballait
2: une tonne de cadeaux et à la pesée, elle jouait étonnée. <coughs> C'est, donc, c'est pas vrai Votre balance a un problème C'est impossible Quand j'ai pesé mes valises à la maison, ça ne dépassait pas Madame, vos valises sont tellement lourdes que vous auriez pu y mettre un cadavre Dis-moi mon fils, tu fais des blagues, c'est bien Tu es algérien, toi, non Non, madame, je suis français Tu es sûr que tu n'es pas d'origine berbère Tu ressembles à un Kabyle. C'est pas la première fois qu'on me fait ce coup-là, madame. Ça ne vous évitera pas de payer l'excédent. C'est au guichet sur votre droite, près du bureau de change. S'il te plaît, mon garçon. Tu vois, ce sont des petits cadeaux pour la famille. Des slips, des jupes, des déodorants. Je ne peux rien faire. L'autre fois, à ta place, c'était une jeune fille, une marocaine. Elle nous a fait passer les valises sans payer. C'est interdit, normalement. J'obéis aux ordres. J'obéis aux ordres, hein Avec une mentalité pareille, je suis sûr que des gens de ta famille ont torturé des gens de ma famille. Je suis professionnelle, madame. Je ne fais que mon travail. C'est pas gentil. Faire payer les gens, ce n'est pas un travail. Hein. Je suis désolée, madame, sur votre droite. Droite extrême droite, oui, raciste.
1: De toute façon, quiconque n'allait pas dans son sens était forcément raciste. Mon père lui, fit des... lui filait Des coups de coude discrets. « Tais-toi, tu te crois chez le marchand de fruits et légumes Arrête de négocier, on va payer. Tu me fais le même cinéma chaque année. » Ma mère avait fini par abandonner, et tandis qu'on se dirigeait vers le guichet pour régler notre excédent, elle a ajouté un « fou » à voix basse, comme elle en avait l'habitude. Elle passait tout l'été à distribuer des cadeaux, des vêtements, des flacons de parfum, des paires de chaussures, des jouets pour les enfants. Tout ce qu'elle avait pu amasser en faisant les marchés chaque week-end durant des mois. Parfois, alors qu'elle avait déjà tout donné, quelqu'un que nous n'attendions pas nous rendait visite. Affolée,
2: elle se précipitait dans la chambre et piochait dans nos affaires personnelles. « Maman, t'as pas vu mon maillot de foot ?»« Cherche bien, il doit être dans la valise bleue. Tu parles bien du maillot de l'équipe qui perd tous ses matchs ?» Maman, tu sais pas où est passée ma robe mauve Tu es sûre que tu ne l'as pas laissé à Nice De toute façon, cette robe te rend grosse. Où est ma chemise rayée Laquelle là Elles sont toutes rayées. Mon père lui reprochait de partir avec des valises pleines à craquer
1: et de rentrer une main devant, une main derrière, c'était son expression.
3: When it came to the July rituals of our holidays to Algeria, we always ended up with excess baggage despite the 30 kilo luggage allowance. Every year, my mother would cart along a ton of presents and then put on a show of surprise at the weigh-in.
1: Yeah, 13 kilos excess? I don't believe it. There's something wrong with your scales. That can be right. My suitcases weren't over when I waited them at home. Madame, your suitcases
3: are so heavy you could have put a corpse in them.
1: So you like to make jokes, eh, my son? That's a good sign. Tell me, you're Algerian, aren't you? No, madame.
3: I'm French.
1: Are you sure you don't have Berber ancestors? You look Kabyle to me.
3: This isn't the first time someone's tried that approach, madame, and it won't get you out of paying the excess. You need to go to the counter on your right, by the bureau de change.
1: Please, my boy, look, there are. these are just small presents for the family. Skirts, deodorants, underwear. There's nothing I can do about it. Last time, it was a Moroccan girl in your place and she let our suitcases through without making us pay. It's against the rules, I'm afraid. I'm simply obeying orders. Simply obeying orders, eh? With an attitude like that, I bet members of your family tortured members of my family.
3: I'm being professional, madame. I'm just doing my job.
2: But it's unkind. Making people pay isn't a job. I'm sorry, madame, to your right, please. Right?
1: Far right, yes? Racist.
3: Anyone who didn't agree with her was automatically a racist. My father nudged her with his elbow. Be quiet! <sighs> do you think you're at the fruit and vegetable? Stop haggling! Let's just pay! Why don't you put us through the same song and dance every year? My mother eventually gave up, adding the habitual. To- under her breath, as we headed over to the office to settle our excess baggage bill. She would spend the whole summer handing out those presents. Clothes, bottles of perfume, shoes, toys for the children. All the items she'd managed to stockpile from doing the market- markets weekend upon weekend, month after month. Sometimes, when she'd already given everything away, we'd receive a visit from an unexpected guest, prompting her to rush into the bedroom in a panic and grab something from our belongings. Maman? Have you seen my football shirt?
1: Have another look in the blue suitcase. You're talking about the shirt for the team that loses all its matches, yeah? right? Mama, do you know where my um, purple dress went? You're sure you didn't leave it behind in this? Nice? Anyway, it makes you look fat.
3: Where's my striped shirt?
1: Which one, Abdelkader? They're all striped.
3: My father gave her a hard time for setting off with suitcases full to bursting and returning home, as he put it without a stitch on our backs.
0: Thank you, Thank Sarah you. and Faiza. What a wonderful interview. So Men Don't Cry by Faiza Again, translated by Sarah Ardezoni, is published by Cassava Republic Press and is available from online outlets such as Waterstones, Foils, Daunt Books, Hive and Bookshop.org. An interview with the publisher Bibi Bakare Yusuf and a review of the novel can be read online at the Book Blast Diary. To buy Men Don't Cry from your local independent bookseller, you can find your nearest store by visiting booksellers.org.uk forward slash bookshop search. This podcast is brought to you by Bookblast. For more bookishness between episodes, visit online journal The Bookblast Diary or find us on Twitter at Bookblast. Special thanks again to author Fizer Again and translator Sarah Ardizoni for their time. And thank you all for listening to this episode of the Book Blast podcast.